0: Hello and welcome to another Pod Academy podcast. My name's Craig Barfoot. So, if you're born into a poor family, are you going to stay poor? Or if you're born into a rich family at the top of our social and monetary pile, are you going to stay there? I mean, how socially mobile are we? Conventional studies suggest reasonably mobile. But Professor Gregory Clark from the University of California and his team have done something that no one else has done. They have followed certain surnames throughout history to determine the rates of social mobility, not just over one or two generations, but over hundreds and hundreds of years. His results are surprising and raising important questions and debates, so today it is my pleasure to be able to talk with him about his new book, The Sun Also Rises. Professor Gregory Clark, thank you very much for talking to me
1: today. Oh, great to talk to you.
0: Conventional studies and uh, conventional wisdom argues that there is a, is a reasonable degree of social mobility between generations, but your findings are, are very different. First of all, can you maybe go into a bit of background uh, as to how you, how you went about getting
1: your results? Well, I uh, completely stumbled upon the results in the book in the sense that what I wanted to do was just measure social mobility over very long periods in many generations. And measuring social mobility in the modern world requires a lot of detailed information about particular family connections. And so I thought if we could use surnames, we could actually uh, get around that and then be able to even measure mobility in the Middle Ages. But when we switched to measuring social mobility with surnames, we suddenly discovered what seemed to be a, a problem, which is that. Measured through surnames, social mobility rates are much lower than conventionally estimated. That is, high status surnames retain their status and only very gradually lose it. And sometimes it can take 10 to 20 generations for a high status surname to become completely average.
0: When, when you say high status or when we talk about social elites in your study, how do you define this? Well, it,
1: it's, it's an interesting fact that uh, social status is a very nebulous concept, but it turns out that there are a bunch of characteristics that families have that tend to go together quite strongly, which are wealth, uh, longevity, health, education, uh, location, uh, high status locations. Uh, and so we can actually posit some underlying univariate social status that people somehow acquire and transmit to their children, uh, and that's what this book is, is trying to measure. It's that underlying kind of aggregate measure of how, how well are you doing uh, within society? What is your rank? In your book, the first
0: country that you look at is uh, Sweden. Sweden is perhaps the example of a social democratic country. What, uh, what did you find when you looked at Sweden?
1: Yes, there, there's a reason that the book starts with Sweden because it's a place where people think that they observe very high rates of social mobility and where the expectation is that that's a product of modern social democratic institutions. And the very surprising thing that you find with Sweden is that the descendants of the 18th century aristocracy and the 18th century intellectual elite, people who graduated from universities, still are heavily overrepresented in all high status areas of Swedish society that we can observe. So amongst attorneys, amongst doctors, if you look at the suburbs of Stockholm, which have the highest real estate values, these people are more heavily found in those suburbs. And if you look at uh, the Swedish academies, uh, these people are also overrepresented there. And, And also if we look at wealth in Sweden, these people are overrepresented amongst uh, wealthier groups. And, and so uh, it's very interesting finding then that even in Sweden, what is happening is that there is a surprising degree of status persistence. It, it's suggesting then that the conventional measures are somehow missing something important about the transmission of status across generations.
0: When you're saying they're, they're missing something, you mean they're missing a, a, a longer term view?
1: what um the the diagnosis of the book is that the slight the conceptual problem with standard measures is that they take one attribute of people's social status such as their income or their occupation or their wealth and then they look at how strongly that's inherited from father or, or mother to child and the problem is with that is that there's a lot of variation amongst individual attributes of people uh, from one generation to the next. And to, to give uh, an example, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein is the most famous intellectual figure in philosophy in the 20th century. Uh, his father was one of the richest men of the 20th century, but Wittgenstein did not inherit any of his, he inherited his father's wealth, but he gave it all away. He died a relatively poor man. But his overall social status of Wittgenstein father to Wittgenstein son actually changed very little. But if you looked at the individual attributes of status, uh, then you would see uh, what seems like a lot of variation between generations. And so the, the key idea in the book is that the individual aspects of status change a lot because people make decisions about what path to pursue, what interests to follow, they trade off income and intellectual uh, accomplishments, they trade-off, artistic accomplishments with income. And so that all of these trade-offs are occurring and it will make it seem like uh, if we focus on any one measure that there is dramatic social mobility. But what's going to happen in these families where if the father is very wealthy and the son turns out to be quite poor, it's actually predictable that the grandson will tend to revert back towards the father's wealth level. And and so the families behave as though there's a deeper underlying social status that is being more faithfully transmitted between generations. And basically what was happening with the modern studies was they were taking the noise in this process and attributing that to overall rates of social mobility. But once we turn to the surnames, we can take out that kind of random noise between generations And focus on this deeper underlying movement of status between generations. And then we find two things that are very important. One is that the process is very slow. There is always regression to the mean, but it's occurring at a slow rate. And then the second very surprising thing is it doesn't seem to be very much influenced by the other characteristics of societies. It's something that seems to happen within families that's almost impossible for societies to intervene and change.
0: Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll pick up on the social aspect of this again in a, in a moment, but first I would like to ask you about the past, specifically about medieval England and the feudal system. I mean, we picture a, a rigid class-based system,
1: but what did you find? In, in medieval England, uh, we, the, the best way we can measure social mobility is actually through the records of Oxford and Cambridge. And it turns out that most people in England had surnames by 1300, and those surnames when they were formed indicated very strongly class differences. So if you're named after a place, you tended to be a high-status person because you only got that name because you lived outside that place. And so it meant that you were in London or in Cambridge, and then you would be called Roger de Hilton, uh, Roger Hilton later. And so uh, locational names like Berkeley tend to be high-status in the Middle Ages. And then we have other names which indicate the occupation of your father. And so those are names like Smith or Cook or Baker. Uh, And those names tend to be relatively low status. They're not the lowest, though, because these are actually artisans. And so what we can do is just look at the records of Oxford and Cambridge and look at the distribution of names in the general population and then the distribution at the universities. And you find in 1300, Almost no people at Oxford or Cambridge who have the names that come from artisan occupations. And the universities are heavily overrepresented in these locational surnames. And then over the next 200 or 300 years, we see the rise of the artisan names into the university. And it's a process that takes about 200 years, 250 years. But by the end of that process, the descendants of the medieval artisans become fully represented amongst the intellectual elite of the English society. And from that, we can actually infer the overall rate of social mobility. But it turns out that that rate of social mobility is the same as you observe in Oxford and Cambridge now. I mean, literally this year. Uh, And so... So the
0: the medieval England, the rates of social mobility are exactly the same as this year in the United Kingdom.
1: That's correct. Yeah. And that's an amazing uh, fact. Yes, that's an incredible fact.
0: But... Okay. That's us looking at the UK. But what about if we look at the US? I mean, the US consider themselves to be one of the most meritocratic societies on earth, a country where, I mean, it's even enshrined in the constitution that all men are created equal.
1: Uh, All men may be created equal, but it also turns out that just as much within other societies in the US, it's very predictable from your lineage where you're likely to end up in society. And the the predictability in terms of overall social status is that at least about half of all variation in outcomes uh, is determined at the point of your birth. Uh, And the way we can see this in the U.S. is that uh, because it's an immigrant society, the U.S. has a huge variety of surnames. And so it's actually quite easy to track the relative status of different groups using surnames in the United States. And what is very clear is that there's just as strong a persistence of status in the U.S. over the last couple of generations as you see in European society. So another group we can look at is just people who had rare names who were wealthy in the 1920s. Those names are still overrepresented amongst doctors in the United States now and amongst attorneys in the United States. And again, from those records, we can actually calculate how quickly they're moving towards the mean And uh, the answer is that there is social mobility, but it's just as slow in the U.S. as elsewhere.
0: Wouldn't the standard economic argument for this be that the rich, elite families invest time and money into the education of their children, and that's what's bringing the results?
1: Yes, it's, it's a very interesting question. And in fact, for me, it's the most interesting question is, what is it that people are inheriting that so strongly is determining their outcomes? And the, the the standard view in economics is that that it's really it's the attention and the wealth and the resources of the families that are driving this process, and that consequently you. Sh- but one of the implications of this is that society should be able to do a lot then to change outcomes by transferring resources to poor families and taxing them away from wealthier families. And one of the things the book shows is. That there's actually very little sign that these processes actually help very much in terms of social mobility. And so, uh, one kind of just uh, example is that in Georgia in the 1830s, uh, in anticipation of expelling the Cherokee, the state of Georgia uh, had a lottery for the lands of the Cherokee, even while they were still in, in possession, and essentially then randomly rewarded men in the state of Georgia who won the lottery with a transfer that was equivalent to about $150,000 now. And uh, an interesting study by uh, Joe Ferry and a co-author have looked at what happened to the descendants of the men who won the lottery as opposed to the descendants of the men who lost. And the answer is that uh, one and two generations later, there's essentially no detectable difference. Uh, getting a lot of resources doesn't change the lives of these families. Uh, the outcomes are, are very similar between the winners and the losers. And that's just one kind of interesting example of what seems to be a, a general uh, sign that it's very hard to change the outcomes for families by simply transferring resources and a dramatic illustration of this is what happens to children who are adopted
0: and what did you find when you looked at adoption
1: well adoption really is a, a very strong test of the uh, of the, the mechanism of transmission of social status because it's the ultimate experiment where we take children, who have no genetic connection with the parents, but now who have the equivalent social connection that biological children would have, and then we can see well what is the outcome in this case. And there's a very nice study that's been done by Bruce sacerdote here in the United States on Korean adoptees uh, over many years in the United States, where the nice thing is that these children were just randomly allocated to families, but to families that differed a lot in terms of their educational status, and also their income. And one startling result that emerges in this study is that the income of the parents has no ability to predict the income of the adopted children. There's zero transmission measured through income between adoptive parents and adopted uh, children. But for biological children, there's a strong connection.
0: So just getting my head around this, so the social status of my great 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 grandfather is still directly affecting me.
1: Yes, somehow there's a web of connections here, <laughs> where uh, to know your outcomes, knowing the history of your entire lineage is informative, and even and I'm pretty confident that with enough data, if we went back five generations. Knowing what was happening to your family five generations ago would actually be predictive of what's happening now. And so people think of themselves as freshly formed, as, you know, as coming into the world with their own energy, their own ambitions, their own uh, history. But it turns out that somehow we are connected to this web of events that's occurred several hundred years earlier that is actually predictive of our outcomes now. Yeah, you're, you're,
0: you're arguing that social status is inherited as strongly as a, as a biological trait, like, a, like eye color.
1: That's right. That's right. And any individual aspect of status is inherited fairly poorly, as we see from these other studies. But overall, social status seems to be inherited just as strongly as height.
0: Your book strongly argues that social mobility is, is slow. It, it is strongly inherited within families and that there is little evidence for, for social or government programs to, to increase it. This sounds pretty bleak, I guess, uh, but you're, you're pretty optimistic in your conclusions of the book.
1: Yeah, this has actually been one of the, the interesting uh, developments in talking to people about this book, which is just how much my own kind of intuitions about this We're very different from other people's. My interpretation is that the world is is fairer than people thought in many ways, that the evidence there is that people inherit different characteristics. We inherit differences in height and eye color and all kinds of features. And what's happening is that the the outcomes socially are largely determined by that underlying biological fact. Of those kind of social abilities that people are inheriting, right? And so in some sense, it's saying the world is much more of a meritocracy, even in medieval England, <laughs> than people have thought. And, and that I take as a as a positive outcome, that it's not a caste and class in most societies and and privilege really don't dominate. It really is the underlying abilities of people, the evidence is that, that determine the social outcomes. The only problem is that we seem to inherit those abilities. And at birth, we come into the world with those abilities. It's still the case that the mechanism of achievement is still that people struggle and strain and take risks and have to kind of face up against the world and show some courage in order to get these good outcomes. And so I think the processes for people look exactly the same as people have always thought. The, The only problem is... That it's kind of predictable who will have those characteristics or who will have those qualities uh, and so as it, so for me It, it doesn't seem Inherently uh, tragic uh, The fact that this is predictable
0: and if social institutions are largely ineffective in changing social mobility, then what role? should social institutions have
1: well the way I read this is that Uh, A society like America has enormous amounts of inequality, but in part has justified that by saying what we need to do is to promote social mobility so that everyone has a chance at the great prizes and everyone has an opportunity uh, to live well and and to do well within this society. Uh, My interpretation is that because social mobility is low, we need to be very careful not to set up societies where the winners take everything and to recognize that the outcomes for these upper status families are are largely uh, uh, independent of the incentives that societies offer. That even in Sweden, where the rewards for being at the top of the status distribution are much lower than they are in the United States, You still get the persistence of the same elite families at the top of of the social hierarchy. And and so what it says is that we should redistribute a lot more. (laughs) We should recognize a lot more that things are predetermined at birth and that we should, you know, the good society is one that won't magnify this endowment that people inherit that's very important to their life outcomes, right? Because even if you don't believe it's genetics, if it's just predictable from lineage, who's going to win and who's going to lose, then uh, what is going to happen here is that, that that should influence our thought about, well, how much do we want the rewards to vary across the winners and losers in the social system?
0: In the end is, so in the end is, your, is your best advice to, to what? To, to marry well?
1: Yes. Now, unfortunately, again, this is it's not something I anticipated starting on the journey that this book represents, that basically uh, there is, in the end, a, a marital advice contained in this book, which is that if your only concern in marriage is to produce high-status children, it is actually predictable which marriage partners are more likely to generate that outcome. And so basically, you have to forget about Match.com. You need to go to Ancestry.com. And the lineage of the person that you marry is highly predictive, right? And so you need to look at their parents, their grandparents, their cousins, all of these contain information about the likely outcome for your children. Uh, And that, again, is in some sense, I, I think some people would find a pessimistic fact about the world uh, and but hopefully, as I say, most people marry for reasons other than simply to produce children that will end up having relatively high social status.
0: Professor Gregory Clark, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Oh no, no that was great. Thank you for having me on.
0: You've just been listening to an interview with Professor Gregory Clark about his new book, *The Sun Also Rises*. Gregory Clark is a professor of economics at the University of California and he was very kind enough to speak to me today. This has been another Pod Academy podcast. My name's Craig Barford.